0: you get 25% off your order. How can you beat that? So what are you waiting for? Get some steaks, burgers, bacon, or other meats and experience the certified Piedmontese difference for yourself today. And now, to my guest. Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I'm your host, Dan Hoppin', and my guest today is a man who has many different titles. Officially, he is the Director of Hospitality for Nautil Companies and the general manager for one of my favorite spots in Omaha, the Interrail Food Hall. But he's also been the executive chef at several restaurants. He recently helped open Sonny's Bar in Exarban Village. Bottom line, I don't think we're going to have any shortage of things to talk about today. Matt Taylor, welcome to the show.
1: thank you so much Uh, your your list of credentials makes me think oh I better have something interesting to say
0: you definitely have interesting (laughs) things to say and let's start with the inner rail because I think it's just one of the more unique places in Omaha we've got a couple different food halls but in terms of the array of cuisine and having the bar there and everything right in the heart of Exarvon I just think it's such a special place so for anyone who hasn't been there it's it's a food hall that has 10 different food and drink concepts. There's the full-scale bar. There's that gorgeous, cozy patio right outside that is just absolutely perfect for these fall nights that we're experiencing right now. Just what, in your opinion, makes the rail special? Why is that unlike any place in Omaha? You, you know,
1: that goes back to probably my single philosophy about food. Uh, food brings people together. And in a real food hall with different world cuisines. And I think we're really proud of that fact that we have not just different cuisines represented, but different places on the map, uh, places on the globe. And when you can come in and have um, Nepalese street dumplings next to sofra creperie and, and handmade crepes, and then go get um, the style pizza, I think what you have is a place where the community gathers different backgrounds, socioeconomic. Um, when I look out every single shift I'm in, and I say shift because we're, we work at this, right? But every day I look at it in a rail, I have a moment at some point where I'm amazed. I feel like the vision of the, being the living room of Omaha is achieved. It's really cool. And I see last night I was watching a little toddler was pushing a chair across the table. Somebody came in with their service dog. There was a group of, you know, probably uh, boomers who had gathered. I could tell that they were from long distances and they had come together and they were having a beer together. There was laughs. And then there's, you students. And I thought to myself, all right, this is Omaha's living room.
0: Omaha's living room. If that's not the new tagline for the NRL, I think we're doing something wrong here. That's a beautiful description. Right. And and I'd say that's all of zone six. So we
1: call zone six that, that whole block there. And it's got sunny's it's got the dog park. It's got that. And sunny's has that special turf area and the sand volleyball courts, you know? So that whole area just brings people together. And that's originally why I think I got,
0: smitten by cooking well let's get into that what what got you into cooking originally what what smit you smite you I don't know what the word is (laughs) just what got you into cooking
1: yeah well I'll tell you it's a funny story I was a undergrad at University of Illinois I thought I was going to be uh the next Faulkner or Hemingway I thought I was going to be a writer um I de- I decided pretty quickly that um I was not disciplined enough nor skilled. <laughs> I uh I love it. I love words. I love literature. Um but I was sitting in a basement coffee house, uh, the Red Herring Coffee Shop. Is a vegan coffee shop. Um I, I'm not a vegan. I stir my coffee in the morning with bacon, I'll tell you what. <laughs> but uh, this is where I went and hung out. Some of my friends worked there. The hummus skidoo sandwich was my favorite. Yeah. So I'm, I'm reading uh, the paper. I'm looking for a job. I, honestly, I was looking for beer money and uh, some way to impress a girl or something, you know. And I see this ad and it said saute chef. And I thought, ooh, what's that? Um, the ad was for Timponi's restaurant. And Timpony's was one of the best restaurants in, in Champaign-Urbana at that time. Uh, Ray Timponi, um, beautiful Italian chef. He went to Italy to study. He came back. He started this restaurant. Um, it was in the, in the mid-90s. It was the spot. I didn't know this. I had no idea. My mother cooked four meals, hamburger helper two different ways, spaghetti uh, with green peppers, which should be illegal, and <laughs> breakfast for dinner. And uh, I I often say that she could have messed up boiling water, and she will admit that too. But I had no clue about food. I just didn't know. So I walk into this place, and I'm looking for a job, and I'm met with a a host. I've come to know who that host was. was But this was a character that I had never seen before. She was uh, an attractive, probably... 30-year-old gal, very confident. Uh, her presence was uh, commanding. Uh, she had the stage smile, but behind it, this edge, this uh, almost jaded charm. And I, I know who that hospitality worker is now, and I love that hospitality worker. But at the time, I was just thinking, wow, what, where am I? There were seven steps that went up into the kitchen from the main reception area. And she looked at me and she said, oh, here for a job and kind of gave me a nod. And this glit in her eye told me I was in for something. So the door swings open. Boom. This grown man, you know, at the time I was like 19 years old. Um, This grown man comes walking down the stairs. He's ripping off his chef coat. He throws it down. He's in tears. I see the door swinging both ways. I can see into the kitchen. And I see this figure of Chef White's, a long bistro ape, and his arms are folded in front of him. He shakes his head no, and he walks away. This guy goes out. She looks at me. She smiles and says, well, I guess you're next. And right then, most people would probably run. Like, I would. Yeah, forget this. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a part of this. But in my mind, I thought, what kind of circus is this? I'm in. Anyway, that figure was Ray Timponi. That guy who left was a cook who wasn't cutting the mustard. He had miscut something. He was told about it. He didn't respond well. I went in and I lied. I said, I've got saute experience. I didn't know what saute meant, but I got put on the station. The sous chef uh, gave me a little bit of instruction. The moment my hand touched that pan, I kind of knew what to do. Uh, there was an, an intuition. Um, there was this natural thing, but what really got me then—that that first job in the kitchen—there was pots and pans clanging, steam. There's there's fire. There's flambe. There's noise. There's chaos. But in this chaos, there was order. Yes, chef. No chef. Heard chef. Uh, repeating orders back. There was this structure. But in the so chaos plus structure. And then the art on the plate, that was it. Uh, and I still, when I tell this story, get goosebumps. Uh, the, that That's the passion. And creating moments of art that are really intimate in chaos with structure, that's a pretty beautiful thing.
0: So at, at what point did you kind of like realize this this is my passion what I've been searching for it's not writing it's this was was it in like that first shift or did you have to survive a couple shifts before things started to slow down for you like when did you realize this is it for me
1: you know I failed so much at that (laughs) that position Uh, I I scorched I I I messed up and um, Jimmy the sous chef uh, he finally walked up to me is like And you're, you're, you're full of crap, aren't you? You don't know what you're doing. (laughs) I said, uh, I just smiled. I honestly don't remember what I said, but Jimmy patted me on the back. He said, stick with it. Keep your head down. Just keep going. The, I think one of the most pivotal moments was when chef acknowledged one of my dishes. I passed a, uh, I'll never forget it. It was a tagliatelle. It was a lobster sauce. It was an expensive dish. Um, I had helped to make that lobster stock. So I, I started learning basics. I put the dish up. He sent it back to me. And he said, what, chef's buying dinner tonight? That, that's what my job is? I'm buying dinner tonight? You're trying to serve this? Oh, I must be buying dinner tonight. I had no idea what he was talking about. He was telling me to throw it away. He was telling me that I had failed at that dish. He walked away. Jimmy told me what to do. I had this moment where I had failed, but I was being encouraged to keep going, to keep trying. And what I didn't know at that time was Tim Pony was testing me. Chef was testing me. He wanted to see if I had grit. He wanted
0: to see if you would leave like the other guy did, throw your apron down and walk out.
1: Exactly. And he embarrassed me. He humiliated me in front of the line. I just said, yes, chef, no, chef, right away, chef. Kept cooking, and then it clicked. Okay, this is not about perfection. This is about the journey. And that to me was really attractive. Um, Fast forward about eight months and chef came to me and said, uh, I I want you to go to some other kitchens and learn some stuff. You've learned enough here. And he kind of kicked me out. And that was another pivotal moment where I realized, wow, he cares. And and I needed that, that mentor, that man mentor in a young male's life. So important. Um, I, I couldn't thank him
0: enough so what's what was the next step over those next years for you uh I went and staged at trotter's kitchen uh, wow, so okay. mid
1: mid nineties and in charlie trotter's kitchen was that's um, no joke uh, it was special uh you know waiting online for an opportunity to work for free uh that's not something you hear about all the time but uh i, I staged there um I thought Trotter was a kind of soft-spoken yuppie type chef who was really, really good at what he did. And what I discovered was he was a mad genius and a maniac. And uh, his uh, volatility was uh, palatable. Um, his uh, ferocious temper was intimidating, but his dedication to the craft was inspiring. So my time there was special. And and that's when I got hit with the... Um, the fine dining bug from there I went to, I worked for Doug Keen at Cyrus, uh, in in Healdsburg, um, two Michelin stars there. Uh, I went and staged it in Keller's kitchens. Um, the difference between two and three stars is coffee and bread. Uh, it's a very close, uh, thing. Um, but to attain a, a third Michelin star is something special. Um, you know, then I went off and I opened a restaurant in northern Minnesota. Uh,
0: Rivers, Italian.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know the place. That's awesome. Uh, I do a little bit of research. I try and prepare. Right on. that was my first adventure at the helm. And, boy, was that intimidating. But a blast. A blast. Well, tell me about it. What makes it intimidating? Well, we were, one, you're, you're completely exposed. I mean, you Talk to any chef, and I think they have some similar take on how it feels. You you know, you get in the kitchen at eight or nine in the morning. You prep all day. You're you're selecting your your products. You know, my ethos at that time was uh, real farm to table work. Uh, Minnesota. There, there's a mentor of mine, Lenny Russo, who has uh, Heartland in in Minneapolis, Saint Paul. Um, really helped me with the the philosophy of procurement and. The idea that it's so important to know where your food comes from, so important to know who's raising your food, so important to know that that's the quality. Um, you know, writing a menu, changing that uh, stewardship. When when these farmers would bring me eggs, would bring me or foragers would bring me chanterelles. You know, it hit me so hard that I had this immense responsibility to them to steward what they were doing. And then I had this immense responsibility to my guests who were trusting me with their money to provide them with something special. So I'm monkey in the middle here with all this responsibility and I was 28 years old. I was married now, I had a young daughter and golly, uh, it was intimidating. But here's the thing that I think a lot of chefs will tell you. You work all day, prepping, procuring, writing recipes, tweaking, and you're dog tired at three o'clock when you sit down to family meal, but then the adrenaline hits and you know that service is coming and that's the fire breathing dragon who's coming after you. And once service hits, your timings are so important. Your control is so important. Perfection is now not something that's this journey, lovey-dovey thing. It better freaking happen. Nothing short of perfect plates. And that, that was the way that I operated for a while. And, um, you know, as a young chef trying to make a name and things like that, uh, that was important for me, but you stand there and you're just, it's like waking up in that dream where you show up to junior high in your underwear <laughs> and you're just, uh, you're exposed and it's just, it's you and folks pick you apart and they, um, they have things to say about your dishes. And at that time, uh, that was a that was a hard um, thing to deal with. That was rough. How do you deal with it? You keep going, one foot in front of the other. Eventually, you mature. Eventually, your voice starts appearing. When you know you you learn to cook everybody else's food, and then your voice starts to appear. Then your food starts to appear. I don't think. Uh, I don't think any chef is born just having their own style. You got to learn everybody else. You got to start at the beginning. You got to learn from masters. You got to you got to learn from mentors and it starts to appear here and there. That's how you deal with it. You just you keep going. You never quit. And honestly, I think hospitality is a is an industry where true grit exists for those who succeed and it's not about being the best restaurant, having the best menu, having the best meal. It's about having the most grit. It's about continuing on and eventually um, things appear. And if you pay attention to it, I think uh, God blesses you with these little nuggets that tell you you're on the right track, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wired that that could have happened as an auto mechanic. I, I don't know. It just happened to happen in food.
0: Hey listeners, so Thanksgiving is just a few weeks away and and this is the giving season. This is when everything is about food, it's about family, it's about coming together and I really can't think of a better way to come together and enjoy great food than with Certified Piedmontese. Just the, the quality, the selection of the meats that you can get from Certified Piedmontese, whether you're shopping online or you're stopping at the Mercado in Lincoln, you cannot top the selection and just the, the amount of things that you can get from Certified Piedmontese, whether it's beef, whether it's pork, whether it's chicken, uh, bacon. I mean, there are so many different options. And when you use uh, my code, HOPPEN, H-O-P-P-E-N, that's my last name online, you get 25% off your order. As you're gathering with your family this holiday season, make sure you do it with Certified Piedmontese. And now, back to my guest. I think it's so interesting that you refer to service as the fire-breathing dragon because I think when, I mean, that, just that that image, that sounds terrifying. It sounds like something that you flee from. And I think most people, you know, when they think about their work, they don't want a fire-breathing dragon. They, they want it to be something that is honestly easy, that they can handle. This is true in other jobs, but something I, I find it is unique to cooking is that you... You know that service is going to be crazy. You know that there are going to be mistakes. You know that there's going to be pressure. You know you're going to be sweating and hot and people are going to complain. Like, you know all this negative stuff is coming and yet you embrace it. What what do you think it is about working in restaurants and not everyone can cut it, but just like that makes you almost like the fire breathing dragon is coming, but you almost chase it right back. <laughs>
1: Oh, man, that, that pumps me up. And as you're saying that, you know, two things come to mind. One, if you asked me what I wanted to be as a kid, I would have said Huckleberry Finn. You know, I want an adventure. I, I want, uh, you know, I think that's true with most people in the kitchen. They are adventure seekers. Right. But then this other thing is camaraderie, because I don't know how many times you've heard stories of darn near fights on a line. And then you go out for a beer afterwards, mm-hmm. right? So it, something about you know brigades, Scaffier. You look at the the brigade, right? The kitchen brigade, Comi chef, chef de partie. You know the, the the saucier, the chef de cuisine, the executive chef. These are the, there's this hierarchy. There's this military style brigade that happens in the kitchen, and services are a little akin to war. And I say that, you know, really, really humbly for actual war, right? Right, But, but there's this image of it that you're going through that fire breathing dragon, but you're leaning into it, right? You're leaning in because one, there's no other choice. You, you don't have a choice. The doors opened. They were unlocked. People came in, they sat down, they ordered food. There is no such thing as, I don't feel well. I think I'm going home. <laughs> You're, you are there. And you, I guess when you remove the option, there's nothing left but to pursue something good. And then when you get to the other side of it, there's such a satisfaction when you look around to your left and to your right. And you see the people that you came through with. You see their, all their mistakes fade away. You see their successes. You see where they succeeded. You see where they did well you criticize each other the next day during prep, but after service it's,
0: it's nothing but this sweet like camaraderie. Just watching you talk about this experience and just this love for kitchen life. I find it so interesting that you moved into, you know, more of a manager managing role at, at the NRL and and we're skipping over broad parts of your career. you, were the executive chef of the lead lodge, you worked at Benson Brewer. I mean, we could, we could go through several different things here, but I want to focus on the interrail. How did that opportunity arise? And what drew you to that, even though it was something that wasn't necessarily keeping you in the kitchen?
1: Well, you know, I I, I was asked one time where my passion for food came from. And I, I don't know why I said this, but I, I stand by it a bit. I said, it's really not food. It's people. Um, and honestly, I'm not a very social person. Uh, when I don't the, believe that for one second. Uh, <laughs> when the stage lights are on, I do it. Okay. When the stage lights are off, I'm at home with a book, my wife, my daughter. Okay, I'm nice. at a volleyball game. You, know, I, I, you have to have some balance because if the stage lights are always on, um, you burn out. But... The transition was an opportunity to follow kind of where my acumen was. And I realized that um, leading people was a, a, an acumen that I had. I, I was fairly good at it. I was being recognized for it. And then I realized also from, from operating a chef-driven restaurant, I, I ran the dining room curated the wine list, the bar program, all of that from the helm of the kitchen, because it was a chef driven restaurant. So you you attain these skills that are translatable and scalable. And so Interrail rail came about. Um, uh, that's a long, funny story. And I'll give you the, the snapshot. Um, I had a, a really good employee who had gone to work for inner rail. And she came back to visit me. I was a training manager for Craftworks. I was I would go from location to location and help, you know, various Craftworks concepts. And she came to visit me. Uh, said hi, and I had just lost um, my main manager. And I thought she had come in because that manager said she was going to interrail to work. I thought this old bartender friend of mine was coming to tease me and rub it in. I said, oh, hey, what's up? You're, you're teasing me that you got so-and-so the manager. And she said, no, we didn't hire anybody. But I'll tell you what, you should come check this out. These guys from New York are running it. Um, you might know somebody. Um, I don't know, just check it out. You know, I was miserable in the position I was in at that time because I had fallen into this. I was trying to develop a career path so that I could – work more from a, a, um, a concept place, I could develop concepts, I my dream was to go back into uh, ownership and, and create some stuff. And I was trying to get skills to run multiple units, and I needed to learn about this. Um, anyway, long story short, I went into InterRail, and I, I ran into an old colleague, and um, it happened that they were running it. And so this outfit out of New York um, was running this and we got to talking and I fell in love. I I honestly hadn't been at a food hall before. Um, I knew that the lane in the food hall world was getting bigger. I knew that it was catching on. I knew it was a hot thing. But in 2000 into 2019, um, it really hadn't completely blown up in secondary markets. It was really a primary marketplace. So I, I went in with my wife and daughter to eat. We all went to different stalls. We all sat down at the same table, and we had a blast. And it was the first time we didn't argue for 30 minutes about where to go. And I thought, hot dog, this is awesome. Long story short, uh, they offered me the general manager position. Uh, there, was some, there was some opportunity to continue the journey I was on, but in an independent uh, company environment. And I jumped at it. I, I took it. And and then that took me to where I am today, which is really amazing. And that's working with uh, the awesome folks at Noddle.
0: So I want to highlight real quick what you just said about going in with your wife and daughter. I think that's what makes the Interrail just so spectacular is that it's really, I would say, the one place in Omaha right now where you can take the whole family, you can take your whole group of friends, and, yeah, you don't have to argue about Where are we going to go? I feel like Italian. Oh, I'm on a diet. I need a salad. Everything is there. You've got all different kinds of food. Everybody can order from their own place and then come together and everyone is happy. So, I mean, like whenever our church small group like wants to get together to go out to eat, we go to the inner rail every time. So just wanted to highlight that real quick. But so you come on, you get this opportunity to, to come to the inner rail and the Interrail opened in October of 2019. You started as a general manager February 2020. So you come in very early on in the process. Most of the concepts at Interrail were either very young or brand new. I think Kathmandu Momo Station was the only one at that time that previously had another location or had previous experience. So you're somebody who comes in and you've got a lot of kitchen experience. You've got chef experience. And now you've got all these different cooks and chefs who were opening their concepts for the first time what was it like for you to coach them and kind of help them find their vision
1: pure joy like a dream come true honestly
0: because it was such a,
1: it, 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 I had to take a turn too because you know in the kitchen life uh yes chef no chef right away chef coaching is a different thing in in this life where we're a management company who licenses a stall to an independent restaurant tour. It's a partnership. And what I was able to do was, was tap into this really cool piece of me that desired partnerships and collaboration. And it wasn't all on me to come up with something. It was this really cool thing where I developed and honed my skills to see where somebody was going, what their vision was, and little things like I remember one of the chefs and owners coming to me and saying, hey, I'm really struggling with this particular dish. I'm not getting the seasoning that I want. I want these flavors to come out. Man, I just, I'm just not happy with it. They were just really venting. And I heard that and immediately I thought, well, have you tried a uh, this type of a brine? No, what's what do you mean? What's brining? And I thought, ooh, hot dog. And I said, may I show you? Yeah, I would love that. So asking permission to be invited into somebody else's world influenced me, helped them, and that was this just reciprocal thing that, man, I, I just love that. I love that. So collaboration was the big thing. It was uh, it was pure joy. But I'll tell you, it lasted for about four weeks, and then the pandemic hit.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that was that was mind numbing. That that was horrible. So I mean, take me through that. How, like, obviously, all restaurants severely affected. But you know, you're just a couple weeks into this new job. I can see the light in your eyes when you talk about. It. You're so excited. You 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 found this thing that you love, and it's new. And then it just kind of, I don't know if gets taken from you is the right way to say it, but it immediately changes. like you have, you love this and then it adapts. What was that time like for you?
1: I think you're more correct when you say taken. Okay. Uh, I, I, that's how it felt. Um, I I remember I'll, I'll probably get the date wrong, but I think it was March 12th. It was a Saturday night. Uh, maybe it was March 13th. Um, Baxter Arena had a hockey game going. We were ramping up. We were coming out of the the January February uh, Omaha restaurant blues, uh, and not just Omaha. All of the Midwest. everybody's on their diet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> their New Year's diet. Cold. They, they, you know, restaurants are slow. We're we're struggling because we're coming off of the high of opening and being really busy, and now boom, we're starting to ramp up back up and there's there's hope and there's uh, excitement and we're we're planning for what the um, summer season could be in that great outdoor space I'll never forget it was 8 p.m. on a Saturday night I'm looking at a full food hall full of just conviviality and fun and I'm just thinking man I'm in the right spot I get a phone call shut the food hall down And we're not reopening on Sunday. Let's talk on Monday. That's it? That's it. And I never heard anything. and And, of course, we had a conversation. I'm talking to folks on the other end of the phone in New York City at the epicenter of what was happening in the country. Their perspective was much different than what we were experiencing in the Midwest at that time. We were still a little... Yeah, this is happening, but what is it? Um, You know, ownership and management agreed that we need to assess and shut this down and then boom. Um, The state came in and said, you know, we're we're closed for indoor dining. That had never happened in the history of restaurants ever before. Nobody knew what to do. I'm sitting in a 20,000 square foot food hall with 10 independent restaurants or nine independent restaurants in the bar we have a certain sales threshold. We have to meet to pay the bills. You can't let anyone in food halls were designed to be a four wall entity where people were attracted to come in. It's all about community, It's all about community and coming together there. We had no online ordering presence. We had no delivery, no takeout, no thought of ever even applying those dining options because that's not what a food halls for. Um, I rested on Sunday uh, after church. I I went to lay down and take a little nap and think, let's, uh, let's just reset. And my mind was just racing. What do I do? Uh, Monday came, and I'll never forget the conversation. This goes back to why grit is the name of the game in hospitality. I had just quit my job to join this adventure, and I thought, what is God doing here? I had been praying about this and I had been miserable in that job. And and I I thought the word I was getting from, from God was persevere, persevere, endure. I know it was God because he knows I'm a knucklehead. He doesn't give me long. It's one word answers, (laughs) persevere. Well, then I had this opportunity and it seemed like it was very, very much correct. And I felt just like now took it, went with it three and a half weeks later, I'm in a pandemic. I didn't know what a pandemic was. None of us did. None (laughs) of us knew what was happening. I just know it's closed. That Monday we talk. We got more information. We understood. Later in the evening I was I was talking to uh you know the management company guys in in New York and, and everybody was locked down. But here's where uh grit comes in. Um they said Buy 50-pound bags of rice and beans. Put them in your basement. It was Chicken Little. It was, uh, it was, this, is, this is it. And, they, and I said, guys, that's, that's not the answer I can accept. Um, what can we do? He said, if you can sell enough to-go stuff through the bar, if you can do whatever you can to cover your salary, we'll keep paying you. I sat in that food hall all day Tuesday, all by myself, and I thought, I have a wife and daughter. I have a response. These are, nobody knows what to do. I have a responsibility. It's just like the fire-breathing dragon of service. The doors are going to open. People are going to come in. There is no escape. There is no leaving. There's no quitting. There's no I give. And that's the thing that I felt. I felt like we have a responsibility to keep trudging forward. There, Let's not lay down. Let's figure it out. Man, that started this this amazing opportunity to just try. And we came up with goofy things like, you know, our music bingo on Thursdays was really hot. So my wife and daughter and I made a, a Facebook live event and we did music bingo in the food hall, just the three of us and made up playlists. And next, th- first week we had 70 people log on. And I thought, wow, Oh, people want to connect still. We just have to figure out how to flip script on the food hall. So we worked with our partners at, at toast, a fantastic, robust, uh, POS company that we use. And it happens to be a tenant now in the village. Um, we developed, uh, we were the first food hall to develop this multiple, um, vendor transaction ordering system where you could order from multiple vendors in a single transaction that didn't exist before. Um, we started a curbside program. We did um we did uh uh delivery. Um I, I mean I was I was doing delivery, I was taking phone calls uh in my AirPods, running to the creamery to uh make ice cream cones, running to I got three vendors who signed on. We will open, we'll we'll try. The rest of them, you know, wanted to assess. And I totally understandable. We made the interrail world food tour. So people could order these and like cocktail kits. So I'm, I'm talking to people on the phone, running around in my AirPods. I'm grabbing stuff. I'm delivering it. I'm taking phone calls. I'm running, I'm racing back. I'm in, you know, N95 mask, gloves, goggles. It was a circus, but in that we found grit, we found opportunity and we developed now things that would have never existed in the food hall. Like, for instance, when you come now in the food hall with a group of people, you can text everybody a group order link, and you can all order on a single tab, and the food, you get a text message to come pick it up at the stall. None of that technology existed, probably nor would it at this time. So in great struggle comes great opportunity.
0: You took on the fire-breathing dragon. You beat it. So you're adapting, you're developing on the fly. Like this, it just reminds me of exactly what you're talking about in the kitchen. Like, yeah, stuff's going to hit the wall sometimes and it's going to suck. And you're not going to know exactly what step you're going to take next. But you just, you have to, it's like you said earlier, you just have to keep going. You have to figure it out. And at the end of service, you're going to be tired. You're going to be sweaty. You're going to have burns. But there's going to be that moment where you look around at everybody and just be like, Guys, we did it. Is, is that kind of a similar feeling that you had at the food hall?
1: It, it, yes, it took longer. It was, it was not without ups and downs. Uh, but I'll tell you, something really special happened. You know, um, Alex, this uh, gal who we were working with, she was our marketing director. We talked all day, every day. Uh, coming up with what new thing, like, uh, what can we do? And anyway, we came up with this program Because the idea was, how can we create some business for these uh, restaurateurs, these little, small, independent shops? And ultimately, my main responsibility is to bring them the business. Their responsibility is to incentivize them to come to their particular concept. Well, one of the things that we did was Meals for Heroes. Uh, We opened up a free Square account. We Uh, put out advertisements as best we could that said, uh, you can donate meals to frontline workers and we will deliver them to hospitals or uh, fire departments, whatever. So we had a meal deal thing. So the, the funds came to the vendor and then the meal went to the frontline worker. So if somebody was sitting at home and said, Oh dang, you know, I'd like to buy 10 breakfast packages for, some nurses, that would be great. Our vendors are getting that revenue. Well, it was chugging along. We were doing a little bit of business. And then um, Noddle Companies, the owners of the food hall, heard about this. And Jay called me and said, what are you doing? We're trying to do something too. And I thought, wow, this is, this is neat. Um, well, what are you doing? He said, well, we've got this thing, Noddle Cares. We'd like, to, we'd like to donate some meals. So tell me about your program." I told him and, and he said let me call a few people who might want to get involved. This is where I I I, I get misty eyed. I tear up. You know that cuz this is what it, it this is what we do in food. Noddle cares came back to the table and said we raised enough money to purchase 300 meals per day. Holy cow. 7 days a week and we'd like to do this for 2 weeks. Can you swing it? I called all the vendors. I said, guys, I know that not all of you are going to want to open, but this is what we've got. Everybody but one vendor opened, and all of a sudden, we had revenue coming in. It got some traction. It up to 352 meals per day. We did two different services. Uh, we split that in half, so each day at lunch, we sent out you know, 175, each day at dinner, 176, and Whatever the math is, and and the recipients of those meals were all the soup kitchens, the shelters, Santa Francis House, Open Door Mission, um, different church organizations who were working to try to keep people fed. Then it extended to four weeks, six weeks. We ended up doing that for nine weeks.
0: That's incredible.
1: And it kept the food hall alive. So it was no... that. Then you learned another lesson: hospitality is not just about grit; it's about people coming together for common good. Feeding folks is—it's uh, a big deal, and you know, and our society is such that uh, we don't have to, uh, you know, forage and hunt to, just to sustain life. And but now it becomes emotional connections. Now it becomes conversations without words amongst people. And when you let that sort of community spirit in, um, I think God smiles on it. And uh, that food hall survived
0: that pandemic without losing one single vendor. Incredible. Now, I know that we've only got a couple minutes here. You got a heart out, so I got to let you go soon. And I could listen to your stories all day, Matt. We might need to have you back on the podcast. But after hearing just this, this story of perseverance, this excitement at the beginning of the job, getting beat down by the just the fact that you were going to be shut down by the pandemic, then kind of this like re-rising up through this food program. What was it like for you when COVID kind of starts to smooth out, the food hall is able to reopen and you get to have guests back in there for the first time. Omaha's living room is reopened and it has families in it again. What was that like for you? Can you take me back? Man, well, I'll I'll tell you it was was a slow start
1: because we had to ask people to wear masks. And that, that wasn't the the favorite thing. Uh, But there were people. And, and I just thought, okay, I don't know what normal is yet, but if this is it, there's people here. And I just, it was an apprehensive joy. It wasn't pure elation yet. We were um, cautiously optimistic. I'll tell you when it happened that it became, Oh, okay. Life is good again. We decided we were going to do a concert on the patio. We were going to have mass stations, hand-washing stations, you know, hand sanitizer stations, but we were going to throw a little party, and we were going to try to live again. And we got a band, and we set them up on Interrail patio. We planned on 150 people coming. 700 showed up. We spilled out over. I was terrified. I, I thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to get. <laughs> am I a super spreader? <laughs> oh, am I a super, we're going to get negative press, all this. But what I looked at was a bunch of people who desired to get together again. And we kept doing that. We kept growing that. And so where we are today is this. Um, we recognize that we have a responsibility to create a safe environment with a bunch of cool stuff that you can do. Some revolving recreation that you can do we put cornhole games out. We have ping pong tables on the turf. We have a teak ball table. We have all these little elements. We do free concerts on Friday. You know, we tried to do a couple private events and we decided we're not going to do those. We're not going to do it or not private, but ticketed. We're not going to sell tickets to this stuff. We're going to provide this for free so that people can keep coming and gathering. We'd never forget the lesson that we learned that the most important aspect that we can create as a is a place for people to come gather, all people. So on a Friday night, if you come to listen to the Jerry Pranksters play Grateful Dead music, you're going to see toddlers running around. You're going to see preteens awkwardly off to the side. <laughs> you're you're going to see uh, uh, younger 8-, 9-, 10-year-olds kicking soccer balls, old heads uh, grooving out, and you're going to see everybody in between, all walks of life, enjoying that we realize that we are accomplishing that goal by doing that. But we also realize there's this heavy stewardship responsibility to continue to evolve and move forward. And one of those things that we're doing, and I I won't drop all the hints, but you know, there's some refreshing going on. Um, menu fatigue is a real thing. We always want to make sure that we are, um, adapting, changing, and staying fresh. So we've got really great, talented concepts uh, who are trying to get into the food hall. We've got great ones that are going to stay. We've got some rotation that's going to happen, but then we're going to work on this project. And it comes from the reason I went to Lead Lodge. Um, I owned a restaurant up in northern Minnesota, but I went to Lead Lodge, and, and the whole idea there was they had this big food program with this ethos of conservation and tree planting and environmentalism, which I was cool with, but I was more of a, I just want to put my hands in the dirt and know where the garlic comes from. You know, I want to meet the pig before I buy him. you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I changed the food program there to, to local sourcing. And we were able to take a $1.2 million food budget that went into the hands of mainline purveyors and we put eight hundred and seventy thousand dollars in the hands of boutique farmers that first year. We developed relationships. Um, some of my friends, uh, Paul Kula, Clayton Chapman, you know, really on board. We Paul and I went down and met Travis Dunikaki for the first time and TD
0: uh, Nitch Pork, e- yeah. yeah. yeah
1: toured the toured the f- pigs together and went to den's meets there in Table Rock and you know, it's a, you think it's a gas station. There's this beautiful meat processing facility in the back. Anyway, you know, that's where I'm smitten now. And so pops, uh, new pizza concept, 80% of our items are coming from a local farm. That hasn't happened in the food hall yet. We're developing uh, some tools so that our Vendors can have access, easy access, price comparisons, and a vehicle to get local products in. We want Rail Food Hall to be the greenest restaurant in America. We want Interrail Food Hall within three years to be sourcing from local sustainable farms. We want to have practices that are, are sound, um, because restaurants create a, a ton of waste, um, I mentioned the Grateful Dead. I might sound like a tree-hugging hippie. I will not deny that. I'm also a little bit punk rock, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure that Interrail Food Hall continues to evolve, continues to be a place for all people to gather, and continues to be a contributor to the food circle and not a taker. And I think that's the next wave. We're excited for that.
0: I Man. I thought I loved the interrail before this discussion and everything that you've said both in the last couple minutes and just throughout this whole conversation has just made me realize really how special of a place it is. It, I mean, you could go and just enjoy the food. The food is fantastic from, from the vendors, but there's also that community aspect. There's the gathering, and now there's the supporting of local farms and and eliminating waste. It's just beautiful. People, You, if you haven't been to the inner rail you gotta change that go i mean we didn't even get a touch on sunny's really there's a great bar outside i want to talk to you more about pops pizza but we didn't have time this just means you're gonna have to come back matt and you're gonna have to (laughs) tell more stories about facing the fire breathing dragon thank you so much for giving us the time today happy to do it omaha as always thanks for eating with us a media production